The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. In what was actually the most divisive time in our country's history, in the Civil War period, Abraham Lincoln called our country to do something counterintuitive and against the grain of our expectation. He called us to give thanks as, as a country. Of course, in 1621, the American tradition of Thanksgiving was established in Plymouth, but it was in the middle of the Civil War in 1863 or near the end of it that Abraham Lincoln gave a proclamation of thanksgiving. Here's particularly what he said. I do therefore invite my fellow citizens in every part of the United States to set apart and observe the last Thursday of November as a day of thanksgiving and praise to our beneficent Father who dwelleth in the heavens, specifically calling us to thank God for his magnanimity. But then he also called us as Americans to repent at thanksgiving. He went on to say this, I recommend to Americans that while offering up the ascriptions justly due to God for such singular deliverances and blessings, that they also do so with humble penitence for our national perverseness and disobedience. Fervently implore the interposition of the almighty hand to heal the wounds of the nation, restored as soon as may be consistent with the divine purposes to the full enjoyment of peace harmony, tranquility, and union. So in a time of great national divisiveness, angst, and chaos, he called Americans to repent and give thanks. This is what we've been doing for the month of November, also in a time of chaos and angst. So in each Sunday in November, we've paused to give gratitude to God in Psalms of Thanksgiving. And we do so again, and for the final time, this morning, because it's the last Sunday of November. Today we'll be looking at Psalm 136. Psalm 136 tells us how to give thanks to the Lord. Of course, Psalms was the hymnal of God's people in the Old Testament, and so they actually sang these songs. And this song was particularly sung during holiday travel. Perhaps this week for Thanksgiving, you traveled somewhere. I know many of us didn't travel like normal, but if you traveled somewhere you may have listened to music in your travel. And to do so, all you need to do is turn on the radio or plug in your phone or Bluetooth or something. But of course, in the Old Testament era, there was no way to do that. So the only way to hear music while you were traveling was to sing. And Psalm 120 through Psalm 136 are known as the Great Hallel. They were songs sung during the annual pilgrimages whether you were going to the Feast of Tabernacles or the Passover or the First Fruits. So these songs were sung by the people of Israel while they were traveling to Jerusalem. This is how they heard music on their travel. And of those songs that they sung on these annual pilgrimages, Psalm 136 was the climax. It was the final song you would sing. Hallel means to praise. And so these were songs of praise sung on the way to the annual pilgrimages of God's people. So look at verse 1, Psalm 136. Here is how the psalm begins. The song that they would sing out loud together on their way to worship God. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. 
for his steadfast love endures forever. I have to pause now at the word love, and I don't mean to be overly pedantic, but I need to show you how important, but also how complex this word is. If you have in front of you a different translation, here are what some of the major translations put. The ESV, which I'm reading, says steadfast love. The NASB says loving kindness. The NIV just puts the word love. The King James, regrettably, puts the word mercy. The NET puts the word loyal love. And the CSB puts the word faithful love. Did you notice not a single one of them is the same? This is for two reasons. It's because there's something difficult in the Hebrew, which is, of course, the original language. But also it's because of the limits of our language, English, the receptor language. She now is a professor at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, but Karen Swallow Pryor wrote an excellent book called On Reading Well. And in the book, she explains the limits of the English language when it comes to the word love. She writes, when it comes to love, we who communicate with the English language are at a great disadvantage. We have essentially one word to cover a variety of loves. We love our children, we love our dogs, we love our mint chip ice cream, at least I do. We love summer and we love our spouses, but all of these obviously, hopefully, are different kinds of loves. Other languages, though, that are not English, have words for these different types of love. The Indian language of borrow has a word for the kind of love that is temporal. Chinese has a word for the kind of love that is eternal. Danish has a word for the sense of falling in love. Hindi has a word for the realization of love that comes only from being separated. Portuguese has a word for the love felt for someone who is part of your past. Spanish has a word for the love of things as opposed to people. And Greek has several words of love that define various human relationships. So we at English, she's right, are at a great disadvantage. That's part of the reason, by the way, that in our culture, we tend to talk past one another when we talk about love. When we hashtag love is love, no one really knows what that means because our language can't really convey it very well without context. So English does not have a lot of clarity on the word love. But there's also something going on in the Hebrew. Hebrew has a word for general love. It's the word ahav. Hebrew also has a word for mercy. It's the word rakim. Neither of those words are being used here. This is the Hebrew word kesed. Or if I had more phlegm in my throat this morning, chesed, I think is how you pronounce it. But this word means something different than those other words. The Hebrew lexicon defines it this way. The core idea of kesed is love of loyalty within a relationship. It is God's faithfulness to his people. Now here's why this matters, okay? Because Psalm 136 is not about God's general loving stance towards the world. God has a general loving stance towards the world. That is not what Psalm 136 is about. Psalm 136 is about God's particular love for his people. Those who have come into a covenant relationship with him. The New Testament calls such people Christians. All right, so this is God's love for those who belong to him. It's not applicable for those who do not belong to him. But if today you belong to God through Christ in covenant relationship, Psalm 136 is for you. J.I. Packer then defines love this way. 
God's love is an exercise of his goodness toward individual sinners, whereby heaven identified himself with their welfare. He has given his son to be their savior and now brings them to know and enjoy him in covenant relationship. And that is why my title for today's sermon is thank God for his loyal love. That's the best we can do in English, I think. So I think the net captures it best. His loyal love for those who are his. And therefore now number one this morning. Thank our God, covenantally, for his loyal love. And look now again, please, in verse 1, and we'll see verses 1 through 3 making this first point. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast, or we might say his loyal love, endures forever. Verse 2. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Verse 3. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures endures forever. We read two qualities about God in these first three verses. The first is that God is good. And the second is that God is great. Verses two and three say that God alone is God. The Lord, the Lord, the Lord alone is Lord's, meaning God has greatness that makes him uniquely God. Here's why both of these matter. God being great is a wonderful truth. There is no one else like God. To whom will you compare him? But if he's great, but he's not also good, then what comfort do we actually have? Verses 1 through 3 ground God's loyal love in the fact that he is both great, but also infinitely good. Let me tell you practically why that matters. Last month, a Christian author who I respect much, Tim Challies, who has spent his entire ministry writing about God's sovereign greatness, experienced an incredible tragedy. His 20-year-old son, his only son, was running around on the college campus of Boyce uh, College there in Louisville, Kentucky, and he was running around with his sister and her fiancé. And at 20 years old, unprovoked, in the middle of the college lawn there, he collapsed and died instantaneously. So here Tim Challies, someone who's ministered as a pastor and a Christian author, as his 20-year-old son preparing for ministry at a Christian Southern Baptist college collapse, and there's no explanation for it. Writing on his blog over the next couple weeks as he's processing the pain of losing his son completely unexpectedly, he wrote about how God's sovereignty, his greatness, does bring some comfort. But he continues to say this, but while God's sovereignty offers comfort, it offers comfort only if We know something of his character. Challies writes, if God is sovereign but also capricious, or if he's sovereign and selfish, or sovereign and arbitrary, or sovereign and evil, then what hope do we have? But he continues, but we are laying our heads on our pillow these days because of God's goodness. We keep saying it. God is good. We may be saying it with sorrow and bewilderment, And even something less than full faith. We may be saying it even at times as a question. God is good, right? But we're saying it. We don't even fully understand how God is good in this. Or why taking our son is consistent with his goodness. But we know it is true because God has revealed himself as infinitely good. God can't not be good. He concluded his post by writing this. The God who does all he pleases... And all that he pleases is good. As we blessed him in the giving of our son, so we bless him in the taking. 
So in verses 1 through 3, we read not only that God is great, but his loyal love is also rooted in the fact that God is good. So give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Now his greatness and goodness make him God, but in his greatness and goodness he also acts. And the first thing the psalmist pauses to appreciate is God's creative goodness. So letter A, thank God for his glorious creation. And this is now verses 4 through 9. To him alone who does great wonders, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who by understanding made the heavens, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who spread out the earth above the waters, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who has made great lights, for his steadfast love endures forever. The sun to rule over the day, for his steadfast love endures forever. The moon and stars to rule over the night, for his steadfast love endures forever. There are many things that this psalm tells us about God's creative ability, but let me pause for a moment to say it is not an accident that one of the most challenged truths of the Bible is that God is the creator. It is not an accident. And that is because perhaps the most foundational truth in the Bible is the first verse of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And notice here we read in verse 4, he did so without anybody's help. Notice verse 4, to him who alone does the following verses. So when God cast the heavens out, when he spread the earth above the waters, he was not in need of assistance. He spoke and it came to be. This is an off-challenged truth. But it is nonetheless the truth. <laughs> and it is repeated throughout the Psalms and throughout the New Testament. And in fact, it is tied to the gospel itself. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul writes, The same God who spoke light into darkness is the same God who has spoken the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ into our hearts. You see, if God does not create out of nothing, he is unable to save lost sinners. But in fact, both are true. God alone creates, and God creates by his power. But notice in his creation, the writer points out his steadfast love for his people. Have you ever made the connection? God didn't just create the world generally to display his glory, though that's part of why he created. He also created the Lord. He also created the world because of his loyal love to those who are his. Our previous ancestors understood this. This is why one of my favorite hymns is, This is my Father's world. And to my listening ears, all nature rings and round me rings the music of the spheres. This is my Father's world. The birds their carols raise. The morning light, the lily white declare their maker's praise. Psalm 19 says the heavens declare the glory of God. Romans 1 tells us creation shows God's invisible attributes and power. But in Christ, the Christian knows from creation God's particular love for him or her. Which is why this is my father's world ends with this verse. This is my father's world. He shines in all that's fair. In the rustling grass, I hear him pass. He speaks to me everywhere. 
The point is the Christian, through Christ and through the knowledge of Scripture, sees God in all of the seemingly little things in the background. Let me give you a point of application here. Over Thanksgiving, perhaps you got outside and you ventured for a walk or for a hike or you enjoyed time with your family in the outdoors. I want to encourage you to do what the psalmist is doing here. When you see God's creative work, see your Father in it. Be alive to wonder in the everyday. Awake to awe in what's all around you. Pause to praise the Maker in the things that seem to be in the background because these are things that show His beauty and show His fatherliness to those who are His. They say something about His love for those who belong to Him. Furthermore, this psalm shows us God's loyal love, not just in who he is and what he's done in creation, but how he has made his people his. So now letter B, thank God for his deliverance of his people. Verse 10, to him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, for his steadfast love endures forever, and brought Israel out from among them, for his steadfast love endures forever. With a strong hand and an outstretched arm, for his steadfast love endures forever. I want to point out some things that I know culturally might be hard for us to hear. Did you notice that the verse keeps using the same refrain, refrain God's steadfast or loyal love, but what did verse 10 tell us he did in love? In love, he struck down the firstborn. In our culture, we tend to think of love as something that only affirms and only aids and tolerates and abets what people want or wish at any whim. In fact, the Bible repeatedly presents God's love as something that also judges evil. Now, we know that in reality. All true love rejects what is opposed to true love. Every husband is jealous for his wife. Every parent is protective of their children because true love must set parameters. Part of why this text makes sense is because in Egypt, the way pharaohs operated is they declared themselves God, and they declared their firstborn God. So God here is opposing what is false and idolatrous. He is opposing evil, and yet he does so with great patience and love. In patience and love, he provided a way for escape. And so verse 11 and 12 tells us those who trusted in him, and in this case, those who put the blood of the lamb on their doorpost, were delivered. I want you to notice the theme that goes through the Bible. God's saving love and God's holy judgment appear in tandem throughout the Bible. Think of how God provides judgment and salvation from the beginning all the way through the end. In the Garden of Eden, God reveals his judgment against sin when Adam and Eve rebel and he puts cherubim with flaming swords at the garden to remove them. But in that same chapter, God says that he will send a deliverer who will crush the head of the snake. See God's judgment and salvation happening together. Or think of Noah when he has the ark and for 120 years he urges people to come to find salvation. But those who reject salvation are drowned in the judgment of God. Notice salvation and judgment occurring in tandem. Or think of when Joshua comes and God is going to judge the land of Canaan who has idolatrously rebelled against God. But Joshua first preaches a message of salvation. And so in the day of judgment, 
when the walls of Jericho collapse, is also the day of salvation, when one house stands, the house of Rahab. Now that theme continues all through Scripture, God's judgment and God's salvation occurring in tandem. In fact, Professor Jim Hamilton, who teaches at Southern in Louisville, wrote a book on this about God's glory in salvation through judgment of biblical theology. It's about 700 pages, so I won't summarize it all now. But in these verses, we see that quality of God. Deuteronomy 7 puts them back to back in verse 9. Know that the Lord your God is faithful and of steadfast love. But then in verse 10 he says this, But he will repay to their face those who hate him. He will not be slack with the one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. God glorifies his name by both saving and judging. These happen in tandem. But I want you to know this morning how you can escape the judgment of your sin that you deserve to bear. Notice in verse 10, it says, God struck down the firstborn. But do you remember what he provided for his people that evening? Though Israel is as sinful as Egypt, God said that anybody who would take the blood of a lamb and put it on the doorpost would be spared. Why? What is God pointing to that evening? That his firstborn will not be struck down, but his firstborn will voluntarily give his life for sinners. See, God's saving hand and his judging hand are two hands that always meet, and they ultimately meet at the cross. This morning, then, you need to understand that either you will bear the righteous judgment of a holy God and be struck down, or if you turn from your sin and run to the deliverer, the Lamb, Christ, you will know God's saving hand that will pull you to himself. This morning, then, know that God's loyal love is offered to you. And if you receive it, he will guide you and preserve you. But if you reject it, you will be crushed. And we're now going to see that in letter C. Thank God for his guidance of his people. And look now in verses 13 through 16, which continues the story of God's deliverance in salvation, but also God's judgment for those who oppose him. Verse 13. To him who divided the Red Sea in two, for his steadfast love endures forever. God, in his deliverance, continued the salvation that he began. Verse 14, and made Israel pass through the midst of it, for his steadfast love endures forever. But notice those who oppose God, what their end is. Verse 15, but overthrew Pharaoh and his host in the Red Sea, for his steadfast love endures forever. To him who led his people through the wilderness, for his steadfast love endures forever. This, these verses tell us this, God saves and he continues the salvation he began. God judges those who oppose him, but God saves so that he can lead his people. Now, this is very important for us today. God doesn't save so that we make a decision to give us afterlife insurance that we can maybe pull out at some future point. God saves to begin a work in us that he will complete until the final day. In other words, he begins something and then he continues it in a lifelong relationship. This is seen narratively in the nation of Israel. God rescues them from Egypt. And then what does he do next? After he delivers them in mercy and grace, then he gives them the Ten Commandments and then he guides them to the promised land. And this is how he works with us too. After we receive God's grace, 
He then enables us to lovingly follow his good guidance through his word and in his world. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 probably says it best. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But verse 10 goes on to say, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, that we might do good works that he has saved us to do. So thank God that his loyal love guides you, not just in a moment of decision, but in a life of discipleship. The grace that brought you to himself is the same grace that leads us safely home. Now letter D. Thank God for his protection of his people. And again, we're going to see these two qualities of God, his saving hand and his judging hand. Verse 17. To him who struck down great kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. And killed mighty kings, for his steadfast love endures forever. And now he's going to list some particular people that God struck down. These were people who tried to keep Israel out of the promised land. Verse 19, Sihon, king of the Amorites, for his steadfast love endures forever. And Og, the king of of Bashan, for his steadfast love endures forever. Now notice verse 21, and gave their land as an inheritance for his steadfast love endures forever. A heritage to Israel, his servant, for his steadfast love endures forever. This section of verses tells us two qualities about how God treats those who are his. In his providence, God protects them in order to fulfill his ultimate promise to them, which is the inheritance God has promised to them. But notice also that God has a way of fulfilling his promise even by plundering the wicked who oppose God's people. Did you notice where he got the land from (laughs) that he provided to their inheritance? A couple months ago, I was driving home from church on, on Wednesday night, and I was dropping someone off who I brought to church that evening. And so on the ride home, I turned on the radio. I'm still figuring out the radio stations here. And so I think I was on 105.7, and I believe it was Tony Evans who was preaching. So I got to listen to him after I had preached and hear someone do it, do it much better. <laughs> and as I was listening to his illustration, he, I don't even know what the sermon was about, because I just caught about 10 or 15 minutes on the way home. But he told this true, true story. He said in his church, someone came to him, who had been asked at work to do something unethical. And now the lady in his church came to him and said, Pastor Tony, I don't think this is right, but I wanted to get your opinion on it too. And and he confirmed that her angst and unwillingness to do it was right. What the boss wanted her to do was unethical and it was wrong. So he encouraged her as her pastor, don't disobey God, don't do what's unethical. Even if there's threat of you being fired, stand your ground and and do what's right. And so she went back to to work the next day and told the boss, I cannot do what you've asked me to do. It's wrong. It's unethical. It wouldn't please God, and that's who I really live for. And the boss gave her a pink slip, and and he he fired her. So a, a week or so later, she called Pastor Tony, and I was thinking while I was listening to this driving home, I know what this call is like. You told me what to do, and look how it turned <laughs> turned out, sort of thing. So she calls Pastor Tony back and says, "Pastor Tony, um, it, I got I got fired. It was it was terrible." Um, but then my boss's boss called me, and he said, "Hey, I heard what the situation was, um, and I want to clarify some some details. Is it true that here's what happened, and here's what you were unwilling to do?" And she said, "Yes, 
that is true. I, he wanted me to do something unethical, and I refused to do it. And, and the boss's boss told her on the phone, well, I have good news for you. I have fired your old boss, and I am hiring you to fill his position. <laughs> and it was a great true story that happened recently at Pastor Tony's church. But would you look in verse 21 again? This is how God has always worked. God gave Israel, God's people, their land, the wicked people, Sihon and Og, as a heritance to his servant, Israel. Do you not know, Christian, that God is capable of providing for you everything he has promised? And he is totally capable of plundering the Egyptians when necessary. God is fully able to provide and fulfill the good work he's begun in you, and he can do so in ways that seem impossible that even use the wicked for their temporary purpose. See, God has promised that he will fulfill the work that he began in us, and he will do so in ways that he provides even through the most unimaginable means. And so the psalm bookends where it began, and now we're at Roman numeral two. Remember to thank God for his loyal love to us. Look in verse 23. This is my favorite in, 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 this, in this psalm. It is he who remembered us in our low estate. For his steadfast love endures forever. And rescued us from our foes. For his steadfast love endures forever. It is he who gives food to all flesh. For his steadfast love endures forever. So let us give thanks to the God of heaven, for his steadfast love endures forever. Verse 23, he remembered us in our lowly estate. On the drive back from South Carolina to Raleigh yesterday, I was listening to the radio and heard some song by some Christian artist, uh, and it was talking about, we are the reason. And man, I really don't like critiquing fellow Christians, so I'm not going to tell you who wrote the song, but it was terrible. It was terrible. The song was talking about how lovely we are and how God looks from heaven and just pines after us because we're such amazing people and we just deserve all of the affection God has because he couldn't ask for more wonderful people. And I turned off the song and turned to my wife and said, for while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were powerless, when we were without strength, when we were godless, God sent his son to die for sinners. God does not love us because we're lovely. God loves us because he's loving. He did not leave heaven because we're wonderful. He left heaven because he's wonderful. So look here in verse 23. He remembered us in our low estate. Let God humble you enough that you can actually give him thanks. We deserve suffering and hell. God deserves glory. We, of all people, should be the first to say, let us give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his loyal love endures forever. In fact, even the things we take for granted, like our daily bread, notice verse 23, it is he who gives food, or to be rescued from any harm or calamity that we may not even know could have befallen us, it is verse 24, he rescues us. So verse 26 begins where the psalm began. Give thanks to the God of heaven. I want to give three particular applications uh, to conclude. If you're a note taker, I'll try to make them simple. Three particular applications to help us give thanks on this last Sunday of the Thanksgiving season. Number one, thank God that God never fails to be God. 
Okay, thank God that God never fails to be God. This verse repeats 26 times about God's loyal or steadfast love. The point is this, though we fail, though we are unfaithful, God is always faithful to himself. Therefore, we can always trust God to be God and love the unloved. See, give thanks to the Lord for he is good because he remembers us in our lowly estate. And because of that, that means 1 John 4.19 is true. We get to love him because he first loves us. And because his love is prior and it's foundational, then we can rest secure in it. Romans 8, perhaps the most majestic chapter in the Bible on God's love for his people begins in verse 1. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but it starts to climax in verse 32. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, how will he not also with him give us graciously all good things? In fact, it concludes by saying this, I am sure that neither death nor life Angels nor rulers, things present nor things to come, height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from what? From the love of God for us in Christ Jesus our Lord. So thank God that he never fails to be God. And therefore you can rest secure in his love every day, though you and I fail. Number two. This one is one I think is very practically important for you on Monday through Saturday. Number two, not everything in the Bible is written about us, but everything in the Bible is written to us and for us in Christ. Let me say that again. Not everything in the Bible is written about us, but everything in the Bible is written to us and for us in Jesus Christ. In short, I hope you never find the Old Testament boring. Romans 15 verse 4 said, Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction through endurance, through the encouragement of the Scriptures so that we might have hope. That's an incredible statement. Everything previously written was written for us, even if it's not written about us. 1 Corinthians 10, after talking about the Israelites being unfaithful, verse 6, these things took place as an example for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Or Luke 24, when the risen Lord is on the road to Emmaus, and he says this, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them all the scriptures concerning himself. Or 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is breathed out by God so that the man of God can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So all of the Old Testament may not be written about us, but it is all written to us and for us. This is why Alec Moiter wrote this about Psalm 136. When we read Psalm 136, we, with our pilgrim brothers and sisters of the Old Testament, can retrace our foundational pilgrimage from Egypt to Canaan and sing with them at every step that his love endures forever. We are safe because the world we live in is his world. We too experience the redemption that he provided. We too enjoy the provision irrespective of the circumstances that we're in. We too enter our inheritance through his victory and marvel at the condescension of his choice for us. We too eat our daily bread, looking to the gratitude of the hand that feeds us the loyal love that endures forever. If you haven't had it happen yet in your life, I am so excited for the day that you call me and you say, I now love the Old Testament. (laughs) These are not the boring 39 books. 
These are the 39 books of narrative that tell our story about our God. They're written to us and for us. Third, final application today. Understand the shaping power of your community. You might be thinking, how did he get that? (laughs) Where did that application come from? That seems kind of out of left field. Don't forget where I started. How was Psalm 136 used by our ancestors in the Lord? Remember, they sang it out loud together on their way to worship. So I want to press this point to you because it's very important. Who are your people? Who are the people that you hang with that when you say something, they echo something back? What are they echoing back? See, Psalm 136 was sung responsively, or I think it's called antiphonally. So somebody would sing the first line, but then the whole group would sing back, for his loyal love endures forever. So the people you're with, when you echo something out, what echoes back? That matters a lot. The people that you're around shape what you believe. Tim Keller, in 2008, wrote a blog post called The Difficulty of Community. 2008, and here's what he wrote. Many things in our culture work against the maintenance of real community. We're conditioned in countless ways to think and act as individuals only, not as members of any body. And even our individual relationships are thinned out based on images rather than presences. Since this is the opposite of how we're supposed to live as Christians, let's think about contemporary communication technologies. He wrote this 12 years ago. The electronic media radically compressed time and space. Just 30 years ago, it was too expensive and difficult to make a long-distance call to another country. But today, we're able to stay closely in touch with others from another continent with little effort or expense. In a highly mobile society, this means that fewer and fewer of our friends and loved ones are actually fully present to us. We get their words and images only, not their embodied selves. In 2008, he was concerned about people who were driving in from New Jersey or Connecticut to his church in New York City, and they would just enjoy the service and enjoy New York and then leave, but never actually be a part of a community of faith, never be a part of the body. Today, of course, with the coronavirus and many opportunities for us to know each other only over screens, there's a temptation for us now, perhaps more than ever, to not have real community to not have people who know us, that we allow to know us, and then to echo back truth that may challenge us. But present relationships in worship matter. And what someone echoes back to you will shape what you believe. In fact, your experience of God is profoundly shaped by the other people in the room with you. C.S. Lewis came to realize this when his friend Charles passed away. Without Charles, he realized that he didn't just lose Charles, he lost something with all the other people that he knew. Here's what he wrote. In each of my friends, there is something that only one other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I'm not able to call everything in that other person out. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Token's reaction to a specifically Charles joke. Far from having more of Token... Now that Charles is gone, I actually have less of token. 
In this, friendship exhibits a glorious nearness by resemblance to heaven itself, where the very multitude of the blessed, which no man can number, increases the fruition within each of us has of God. The more we share the heavenly bread between us, the more we all have. Lewis's point is simple. We bring out something in one another in our relationship with God that only happens when we are engaged in real community. So let me give you this warning. Do not allow to be acceptable in your mind a disembodied church. Do not allow to be acceptable in your mind a disembodied church. That is not what a congregation is. That is not what community is. And it will bereft you of knowing God. In fact, those of you may be watching live right now, if you haven't been here for 10 months, have you noticed a difference in your spirituality? And I think, honestly, the answer has to be yes. Because we are not disembodied and at the same time a body. So, let's do something to end the sermon today. I'm going to read a part of the verse, and will you please respond this way? For his loyal love endures forever. And say it loudly so the people around you can be encouraged by it. I'll read, you respond, just like our ancestors in Israel would have done. Verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his loyal love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. To him alone who does great wonders. To him by his understanding made the heavens. For him who with a strong hand and an outstretched arm delivered us. It is he who remembered us in our low estate. It is he who rescued us from our foes. It is he who gives food to all flesh. Give thanks to the God of heaven. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. God, we thank you that your loyal love endures forever. And there are many times that we are challenged to disbelieve that truth. We feel that things are no longer under your care. We think, feel that things are spiraling out of control or that we're forgotten. But Lord, your loyal love will never fail for your people. First, though, Lord, I need to stop and make sure I'm clear to anyone listening that if they are not your people, this is not true for them. They will not know your salvation. They will know your judgment. This psalm talks about Pharaoh being drowned. It talks about kings being killed. All who oppose God will find his judgment to be swift and sure. But Lord, because you're good, you actually put the judgment we deserve on your son. And the firstborn voluntarily gave himself. And he climbed the hill of Calvary. So that we would not have to experience the condemnation we deserve, but so that he could remove it as far as the east is from the west. So, Lord, I pray anyone who's listening who is not saved will know that you can be a good father who will grant them your loyal love forever. 
May they turn from sin and trust in Jesus and know salvation. But for those of us who are God's people, help us, Lord, to remember your loyal love. Help us to see it in creation. Help us to see it in your deliverance. Help us to see it in your guidance and provision, even when sometimes you help us plunder the Egyptians. But Lord, help us also to see it together in community. We must hear our brothers and sisters remind us that his loyal love endures forever. At times when we're low, when we feel isolated, when we feel weak, we cannot wander from the sheepfold where the wolves wait. We must gather with one another and circle around the good shepherd. Give us the ability to do that. Give us the strength and confidence to do that. And Lord, allow us to have real community and presence with one another so that we can rejoice in the loyal love of our Father. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com.